Hi, and welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. My name is Deb Crow, and I will be your host. Join me on this journey as we meet heart-centered leaders from all over the globe. Lots of interesting questions, interesting conversation, and find out what makes a leader. How do they handle uncertainty and complexity? How do they lead in a time that is volatile? Join us. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm excited today. I'm interviewing a colleague who I've got to know over the last few years. I can also call him a friend. And I can say without the shadow of a doubt, he is probably one of the best writers that I've ever met. So let me tell you about my guest today, Mike Greenlee from New York City. Mike is an American writer. He's an entrepreneur. He's a lyricist. And he is quite popular in the interactive online journalism sector and has been since the mid-1980s. He was basically the forerunner to blogging before blogging was even blogging. How fun is that? In 1983, Mike left his position as the marketing vice president of Avon Products to become a freelance marketing consultant and writer. I know there's a story there for sure. And Mike has been called, quote, probably the most widely read writer on the source, one of the first online services oriented to the general public and attracting 60,000 subscribers at the time. In 1986, Mike did firsthand interviews conducted about AIDS and they were placed online and were published as Chronicle, the human side of AIDS. And then in 1987, Mike received an award from Computer Press Association in the category of best online publication for his interactive electronic coverage of Apple World, Macworld Conference and Expo and Comdex. I literally could spend the whole podcast introducing this amazing, amazing guest. So Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Mike, it's so funny, you know, I joke that you were the forerunner to blogging, but you really were. You were like the internet on paper before the internet became this large global presence. So what an interesting conversation we're going to have today. <laughs> Good. I had something called Mike Magazine online at the time. And when I applied for press credentials to be the first journalist to cover the Democratic and Republican conventions and the Hollywood Academy Awards via interactive computer. Nobody even knew in the press office what I was talking about. I had to educate them on this new thing about computers. Well, I know you're a vivid visionary and I know you see things that other people don't see in the future. So I'm going to jump in with my first leadership question. Could you share with the listeners how you got the courage to leave an executive position that I know you absolutely love to become an entrepreneur. Share the story of transition and work up to that decision that you made. Well, I was, I did love uh, being 
successful in corporate life. I was at Avon and I had a great experience there. Back then they were the world's number one in direct selling and in beauty. And they, what was so great about them is that they moved people around. So at one point I was in charge of developing every single aspect of 300 new products a year. Then I was in charge of the brochure, which was their main selling vehicle, 22 million brochures every two weeks, large enough so you could do split runs and see what would sell more lipstick. And then I was in charge of meetings and events and had to overcome my stage fright in order to give presentations to 5,000 district managers. So all of that was great. But at the same time, I was in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis wanting to change my life because I had been unhappy as a teenager, an outsider. I'd experienced various kinds of prejudice. And I came to New York. I got some therapy, which changed everything. And I graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Duke. And then I came to New York City. They said, don't stop learning about yourself. So I got into psychotherapy. It was so important to me that I was thinking I was going to become a full-time psychotherapist. And that was going to be my plan for leaving Avon. And I was in training. I was being supervised. I was actually seeing patients and doing quite well. But I also read two books that changed my life. And Oh, and Avon may be the youngest VP in their history. My parents already knew that I wanted to leave. And they said, oh, no, young man, we want our son to be a Fortune 500 VP. So I did that. But while I did, I read two books that changed my life and gave me courage. One was by Alvin Toffler, the futurist. And way back in the 80s, he foresaw what many people didn't, which was that we were, we'd long ago left the manufacturing, or sorry, the agricultural age. We were leaving the manufacturing age, and as he put it, about to enter this new information age. And that was transformational. And uh, Avon, I, I presented it to Avon as this, I read this book on vacation. I said, there's this thing we got to learn about computers. So they bought me my first computer, a, a first Apple, an Apple II computer. And I started talking with people around the world. And I realized, gosh, there's all kinds of ideas out there. And I have marketing and communications experience. They have ideas. Maybe, maybe I could help them and help myself. And the other book that convinced me that the time was right was a book by a journalist, Gail Sheehy, who was writing for New York Magazine called Passages. And she made the point that we all go through changes in life. And her book made me realize I was at one of those passages. And I had to decide, would I stay in corporate life for the rest of my career? or would I do the bravest thing I'd ever done and quit? And between Toffler's book about the information age and my sense of already reaching out and talking to people online and passages, I realized this is the time, be brave, and I did it. Well, and it, it sounds like there were so many steps and emotions and things to help you get to that decision-making process. And I, I know from previous conversations we have that you've never looked back and you've just had a successful run ever since. So what a great story, Mike. And I'm sure there's executives out there that might have a dream in their heart or a vision in their mind. And, and, you, and sometimes it just takes another person in the same space to just share their story to allow them to make the decision so that they can transition as well. So thanks for sharing that, Mike. Oh, just one other quick thing. The very fact that I was an executive, I find clients tell me, sets me apart from 
all kinds of freelance writers and speech coaches because I've lived life on their side of the desk. So I know the pressure that they're under and the need to perform. And for example, stage fright is much more common than people realize. And having learned to overcome my own as an exec, all that experience helps me help executives today. Oh, 100%. You have the relatability and, and there's no guesswork. So again, just another tool in your arsenal, which makes you so good as a writer. My second question is the one that all my guests get asked. What imperfections do you bring to your heart-centered leadership as a writer, a speech coach, and a motivational speaker? What imperfections? Um, well, <laughs> I know from my psychotherapy that I was raised to be what my therapist called hyper-empathetic. And the, the reason why that can be an imperfection in business is that if you get too worried about, too worried about the feelings of the person that is on your staff and that you need to give negative feedback to so they can improve themselves. In other words, you need to point out mistakes and opportunities for improvement. If you're too sensitive to their feelings, you won't give clear feedback, honest feedback that will help them. So I've had to learn to balance the fact that I genuinely care about people with the fact that part of caring about them is telling them hard truths, things that they need to improve. And that, again, the therapy helped me sort of process and realize all this. So I would say that's one of my imperfections that I try to, I try to turn into a strength, caring about somebody else's feelings. Well, and I think one of the greatest things we can do as human beings is to, you know, intrinsically validate someone else and step into their world and, and see the world through their lens. So again, just another positive trait that you possess, Mike, and it certainly makes you a heart-centered leader. Now, my third question is, you have seen the writing industry go through many transitions over the last few decades, especially with the digital world and online marketing. What has been the biggest challenge or success that you have noticed through this time? When you say through this time, do you mean with the COVID virus or? or over, the, over the last few decades, since you've gone out on your own as an entrepreneur, you've seen changes with the internet and digital marketing, online marketing, how, how has that affected writing? Well, it's very interesting. Um, I find that, well, I find first of all that in, in a basic way, it hasn't affected it because writing is always about helping somebody convey his or her truth in the most effective, impactful way and that need to help people tell the truth and to achieve their own goals by being able to motivate others, I think that's timeless. However, it's, it is also true that with the changes of the past decades, uh, the internet, for example, human attention spans are shorter than they've ever been. So we now have, this is documented, um, the, we have less human beings have le a shorter attention span than a goldfish which is about eight seconds. And that, and this has happened, started decades ago with MTV, those music videos. Instead of watching an hour long show, people could see a whole song in three and a half minutes, but the internet just sped it up. And what that means is that these days, you have to be conscious of the fact that you don't have all day 
even if you're the president of the company, if you want to be effective. So I've learned a lot about how do you get across the most important point that you want to stick in somebody's brain at the start of a speech, through the speech, at the end of the speech, so that no matter what else is happening in their lives, they walk away with your takeaway message. The other thing that's happened uh, over time with the internet, I think, too, and, and things like PowerPoint is, although I'm, I'm working on a eulogy for somebody, for example, and a commencement speech, and those are speeches, but often now business presentations are using PowerPoint and bullet points. And that's fine because it lets the person speak in their own real-time language relating to the audience. But it's still, the need is still there. I think it's timeless to remember what are you trying to get across? What is it that you want to accomplish? And so part of, part of what's happened is keeping in mind the sort of the basic truths of communication and motivation, while at the same time bearing in mind that the world has changed, audiences have shorter attention spans and have many more distractions. And you have to therefore work harder and smarter to be sure that your point gets across no matter how much time there is, even if it's only 90 seconds. Well, and I, I remember years ago learning the acronym PREP. And I want to know, Mike, if it's still relevant today, whether you're doing uh, writing a speech, giving the speech. So the acronym PREP, so point, reason, explanation, point. Is that still an acronym that serves us well today? And does it fall within the coaching and strategies that you teach people? Honestly, I've never heard that acronym before. It makes sense to me. Um, the, the closest I can come to it, and then I'll, I'll share an acronym with you. Um, the closest I can come to it is the idea that many people say, if you're going to give a speech, state the main talking point up front, make sure you emphasize it, and then finalize it again by reinforcing it. But what I've found is um, an acronym that is meaningful to me is WIFM. What's in it for me? And one of the most common mistakes that people can make whether it's a speech, a PowerPoint, whatever it is, is getting so caught up in themselves and their message that they forget about the audience. What is, what's in it for them? So when I'm writing a speech for somebody or creating a PowerPoint or video script, whatever, I always now try to listen in stereo. One ear is listening on behalf of my client. What does she want to get across to the audience? What's the main takeaway message that everything else, like a North Star, has to point to. But the other ear is listening from the point of view of the audience. Is this relevant to who I am and me and the audience and to what I need? So when I interview somebody on a presentation, I'm always asking not just about their point of view, but I get them to tell me more about the audience so that I can help them shape the remarks to be meaningful to the people that the speaker wants to influence. Do you follow me? I do. And I, it, you know, it's like many sectors. There's lots of different acronyms that we've had exposure to, whether it be from education or someone in our life or a work experience. So I love that. And I'm sneaking in another question. Okay. Um, I know that writing is your passion. And I know that you have written a lot of songs as a lyricist and that you've met a lot of artists. Please share with us how this came to fruition and how 
your songwriting has given you more exposure as a writer and a speech coach. So how did I get involved with being a lyricist? Is that what you're saying? Yes. So it, um, that was really interesting back at Avon because it was a different world. Back then, theme uh, sales meetings typically had a theme song. So, and a creative director, which I've also functioned as, would come up with the theme. So if a client was, or company were getting two groups together, two departments, let's say they were blending them together, um, and maybe the audience wouldn't really love that because each one, they've been competitors, let's say. And what you have to keep in mind is, uh, what is the takeaway message that's going to unify them? So a creative director might come up with an idea like, um, better together and would then decide, okay, let's have an opening video with things that are better together, ham and eggs. And maybe there'd be a song and the song would have two singers and you get to hear them each separately. Let's say it's a, uh, a white man and a black woman and you hear them each separately, but wow, when you hear them do a duet, you realize that they're better together. And all of that throughout the entire meeting is about reinforcing this idea of being better together. So back then, there would be a theme song to help get across that point. And I found that as I was working, so at Avon, you know, it was the world's largest in its field, we would interview five different production companies in order to choose one that would produce a particular meeting. And what I found in working on the meeting is not only that I was better at improving the speeches, I mean, after all, I was an insider, so some of that was just cultural knowledge, but even when it came to the songs, that I, I seemed to have, I discovered that I had a knack for writing lyrics. And when I later on left corporate life and we went to, I was hired by those same agencies to go pitch clients on why this agency should be in charge of the meeting. And typically we had had to write a theme song for the clients to consider back then. On the way back from one of those meetings where the clients had loved the song, I said to the composer I was with, Paul Gazone at that time, um, listen, this is so, we seem to be so good at this. Why don't we start writing songs for the public? And that's how I, I started to do it and found a, a great song plugger in Nashville, uh, uh, Chris Keaton, to plug my songs to, uh, to, uh, to uh, Tim McGraw or any, any kind of celebrity down there. You have to be in Nashville if you're going to pitch songs to country artists. And I just found that the more I did it, the more I loved it. And I now have written songs with all kinds of different styles and different composers who are leaders in their fields. It's just, it's a joy, really. It's not work. It's a, it's a pleasure to take an idea and express it in words, knowing that it will then become even richer when music and vocals are added. Well, it's definitely seems like it's been such a rewarding, again, another transition for you in your career as an American writer and entrepreneur. And I know that, uh, I, I know that you've had a nod or a mentioning of a potential Grammy. I know that you've had a song related to a United uh, state in the United States. I know that you've written songs that are attached to large brands. So I just don't know what's next for you. I'm looking forward to seeing the next trajectory of, of where you're going to take this writing, Mike. Well, you know what? It, because I love it so much, 
it seems to me that in general, across any pursuit, that if people are doing something that they love, they're more likely to be successful with it than if they're just trudging along doing something that somebody else wanted them to do and didn't come from their heart. Hence the the birth of Imperfect Podcast. It's It's a joy meeting leaders like yourself all over the world who are leading. And when you're leading with heart and have it aligned with your mind, that is where the passion, you know, not only starts, but it sustains itself. And like you said, when you, when you do what you love, the old cliche is you'll never work another day in your life. So, so happy to see that you've achieved that success in your life, Mike, and that you're doing so many different things. I like to switch gears now and finish up the podcast with what I call the, the fab four. Okay. These are just four fun questions, whatever's sitting on the top of your mind. So my first question is, you have frequently alluded that you love words. You have professed that they are your friends. So what word would you give to 2020, Mike, and why? <laughs> wow. Um, I would say transformational, because I, I, we cannot continue to go this way. I mean, the virus itself, uh, the global virus of COVID is transformational, but all of the implications of it, and that's just one example of this year is just bursting with challenge, but also opportunity. And I believe, I want to believe, but I actually do as well, that we can come through this better. And that's the challenge of it. And, but it means that we're going to have to transform the way that we do things, the way that we think about things. I think 2020 will be seen years from now as a pivotal moment in human history. So transformational would be my word. I, I think that's a great word and, and I fully agree. My second question is, I know you are a huge lover of Broadway. So if you were asked to create a theme for 2020, and give it a name for a Broadway play, what would it be entitled? A theme for 2020 as a Broadway play. Well, it's funny. Um, it, uh, it, I, it would be somebody else's song title now that I'm thinking of it, but it's never been a, a Broadway show. What comes to my mind is a song by Journey called Don't Stop Believing. And I think that I'd want, if I were involved with a Broadway show, I wouldn't want it to be a downer. I'd want it to be inspirational. And even in the midst of all that's around us, I think that's what I would want it to stand for is don't stop believing. Keep going, keep hoping, keep doing your best, keep giving your all, and you'll come through it. And I, that is an iconic song from Journey. I remember that song in high school. And I don't know the stats, but I do believe it's in the top five of, of one of the most downloaded songs to date. And it's a great song. So what a great choice. Thank you. My third question, Mike, is if you had a conversation with the younger version of yourself, let's say Mike at age 18, what advice would you give to him? What a great question. Um, I've been through so many ups and downs uh, that I think I would want to assure 
young Michael at the time, Greenlee, um, I, really the same message. Don't stop believing. There will, you can create opportunities. When they seem to be taken away from you, that's the time to get creative and look within yourself and think about what are your resources? What are the needs out there? Don't stop believing, keep going. And I would tell my younger self, you're going to have problems. They're gonna be big problems, but don't stop believing because if you trust what you've discovered, what you're discovering back then is your gift, your talent, that's powerful. So then leverage it and use it to help other people. And in doing so, you'll be helping yourself. Well, that's great advice. And my last question is, what do you want your legacy to be? Wow. Well, honestly, I've written some songs that, uh, first of all, I love the fact that when I help a client, really, it just, it gives me a thrill when I'm in the audience and I'm here hearing an executive deliver a speech that, or a presentation that I wrote and then maybe coach that executive on how to deliver and I see them do a good job, that gives me enormous satisfaction. And that's still true. Um, but you, you asked me about my legacy, is that right? Correct. Yeah, so those are ephemeral because you have the sales meeting, next year there's a different meeting, a different need, so they don't last. But one of the joys of being a lyricist is that I believe some of my work will last and will have relevance. And just to give you a couple quick examples, I wrote a song with Gil Polk called Common Ground, and it's part of my deep ethic that we need to, one of the, uh, one of the lines in the song is, everyone is different, all of us are equal, can't we find some common ground? And I'm thrilled that <clears throat> Mayor Billy Kaiserling in Beaufort, South Carolina, where I grew up, was inspired by my song so he's titling a book that he then asked me to co-write called Sharing Common Ground that I think will, can have a real impact on racism in, in this country anyway, and about having white people, for example, who don't know about black history because it's not being taught in Southern schools what freed slaves were able to achieve once they had their freedom. It's inspiring. So. I want that song and the legacy of common ground to be, to last forever. Um, I, I also, a similar thing uh, with Grant Malloy Smith, I wrote a song about ages, about being older. It's called, I See You. And it came, uh, came across because he heard an older woman saying she felt totally invisible to younger people. And what thrills me is that, I, first of all, I love the song that, I love what Grant did with my words, um, but I love the fact that a great organization called Masterpiece Living is, has adopted the song as the theme of their now in development new anti-ageism campaign to cause a consciousness that you don't, that a, a, an older person is not to be discarded because they're older. In fact, they should be respected for what they've achieved. And, and that song, by the way, that's on the Grammy ballot for best American roots song. And my goodness, what a, I'm proud of the song, but what a legacy that would be if the song were even to get a Grammy nomination. And, and then the last one I'll mention uh, was Jim Papoulos, a wonderful composer, a leader in his field and the choral world. 
he was asked to, if you remember um, Sandy Hook Elementary School where kids and teachers were mowed down by a deranged gunman and the school in, in Connecticut reached out to Jim and said, could you read, please write a song in commemoration of these lives? And he came up with a title, Always My Angel, that the kids and the teachers were gone, but they're always our angels. And I wrote the song, Always My Angel, and I'm really proud of it. And it's coming out in sheet music. I think that's another song that can last over time. And so I think really more than my day-to-day -day work with executives, which I treasure, I think it's my words in songs that will last or have at least a decent chance of lasting and being relevant to people many years from now. That's my hope and, and frankly, it's my belief. Well, and I, I have to say, Mike, I agree with you. I think once your words hit the paper, whether it's uh, something that you've written for a speech or a PowerPoint presentation or a song, it, it becomes a, a permanent element of, of your passion and your talent. And I think it'll be a beautiful legacy that will live on for, for many years. I just want to thank you, Mike, for your time and expertise today and just want to wish you all the best in the future and uh, look forward to seeing what you create. Thank you. And good for you to do this, these podcasts. You keep inventing and expanding yourself. You're kind of a role model and an inspiration yourself, Deb Crow. Well, thank you, my friend. And I like to end the podcast with my list of five things that allow us to be purposeful in our life, follow your heart, have passion, do your best, know your truth, and always be in love with the journey. This is Deb Crow. Thank you for joining me once again on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast.